0: Hello, and welcome to the Allen and Overead podcast. My name is Clive Garfield, and I'm the leader of the organizational behavior practice within a and Consulting. Recently, I hosted a seminar with Vika Scholten, a behavioral scientist with Dutch-based global consultancy firm, And Sam Howell, where she is the head of their behavioral risk practice. We talked about how organizations can approach and manage behavioral risks and how firms need to focus their efforts with a strategic structured approach. I thought it was an important and timely discussion, and I'm delighted to present highlights from our conversation here. Really pleased that Vika Scholten has agreed to join us today. Vika, do you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself? I know it's an interesting read.
1: Thanks, Clive. And uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Vika Scholten, indeed, I am a director of Behaviour risk aid, and somehow that's a Dutch-based global uh, consultancy firm uh, that has been specialized in behavioral change and applying a behavioral uh, perspective to uh, risk management. And has been around for the last uh, 30 years. And I'm a behavioral scientist myself, I'm passionate about making uh, social and organizational psychology practical for uh, corporate life. And uh, I actually mainly work in financial services. Uh, helping firms with their behavioural risk management. So I'm very excited to talk about that today.
0: Where do you start when you say an organisation? We're talking about behavioural risk and we're talking about managing behavioural risk. Where do you start when it comes to managing that behavioural risk? Where should an organisation start and how should it manage it?
1: Well, the interesting thing is behavioural risk management is a new field, relatively new. I would say the last 10 years, it's been up and coming in the last, let's say, four years. Uh, organizations, for instance, in financial services, if I take that industry as an example, are now investing in that uh, more uh, structurally. And where to start is really to understand and realize that how to manage behavior risk really resembles how you manage other risks. So if you take financial services again, credit risk management is often, you know, sort of bread and butter for organizations. Well, behavior risk management, you actually organize in a bit of the same way. It often follows three steps. One is to know where your hotspots are. So to do a risk assessment across your organization, where are their potential vulnerabilities? Where are areas or business areas that you have uh, certain locations? It could be also certain processes that are designed in such a way. Let's say financial crime is an area that we do a lot of work in. Processes are designed, designed in a certain way, for instance, onboarding processes of new customers and then still the effect is not obtained that is uh, where that process is designed to do. And that often has behavioral causes is, or in certain business area where you feel there's something going on there, there's perhaps some smoke, uh, but we don't know yet where the fire is or Uh, It's an area where it would be particularly unhelpful if things go wrong from a strategic perspective. That is your first step, to know where are your hotspots,
0: we ought to call it. Yeah, it's interesting because culture, and if you look at behavior and culture, it's not homogenous throughout an organization. So actually finding those target areas in the first instance, almost those areas where it's not working well, and actually areas where it is working well, because that sometimes internally gives you an answer as to, well, look, why is it working well here and not working well over there? That's really important.
1: Yeah. Because what we know of people as well is how we behave at work is very much guided by our direct professional context, really important that that's right. But what I do daily is much more influenced by my direct colleagues, my direct line management. It's the area I live and work in daily. That's of influence on how I act and make decisions. And that means indeed that sure, you can build at the top of the house, a cultural intention. And I think organizations often do that well to translate strategy to culture. What do we need? Who do we want to be? What are our values? All of that important. It gives behavioral direction. However, in reality, that's operational practice. How things go in reality in daily life then differs per area. And that's all right. But what you can do as an organization is understand where are then those vulnerabilities? And that is, I guess, step one. And you can also use data for that. Lots of organizations are looking at what type of data to look at to assess those vulnerabilities. The second step is then to go in and understand at a deeper and more thorough level, uh, what is happening then here? So why is it that we, for instance, have a balanced scorecard, but then still in this business area? We see people selling a certain product that we feel you also should sell in a different way. And whilst on paper, there's a great balance. In reality, in that area, there's still something going on. And to understand why that happens, knowing that 90% of people want to do the right thing, why does that still happen? That is sort of the second step. And the third is really to once you know what, aspects of the way we work here in that business area are causing issues, how can you then address that before real issues happen, such as, I don't know, indeed, mis-selling and a regulatory fine. So in some, it's a very structured approach that really resembles, I guess, also how you manage other risks that makes use of behavioral science, which is also, I think, an important aspect uh, to understand that, to incorporate that in a certain way really helps. To do it in a structured, evidence-based way.
0: I like your tone from the top comment there, because actually, you know, i run a lot of focus groups with employees, quite a few over the years, something like 750 or so globally. And everyone always says, in the main, people always say, well, actually, tone from the top is great. Um, the values, the purpose, the vision, how we're going to get there is really well set out. And yet, there is inconsistency in the way that trickles down throughout the organisation. In the main, that tends to be manager inconsistencies in the way that, and sometimes it's not heroes and villains in these stories. Sometimes it's because people are very resource pressured and they don't get time to maybe translate the messages down. There's all sorts of reasons, but it's that inconsistency. And, you know, that means that eventually you take your behavioural cues, as you said, from your direct manager.
1: There's also things unintentionally not happening as you wanted it, so I hear senior leaders often also say, look, I've communicated so many times, this is the direction we should take, and still it's not happening. How come? That is often very explainable. Like, you know, something that you can explain if you go into that practice and try to understand, and there are ways to do that uh, in a very pragmatic and practical way, to understand why people behave the way they do at work, and why it's a bad way that way over here, while it's, indeed it's another way over there. And I think also with the reactive, proactive, look, I think this harbors a great potential. So to add behavioral risk or a behavioral perspective to your risk management really makes it more forward-looking. So you're better able to prevent things from going wrong or better said, perhaps, better able to achieve the goal you want to achieve. And that has been proven in practice. So I think that's also what I would like one of the key takeaways for everyone on the call and the seminar to be is that this is not only a good idea conceptually, but this is because everyone agrees, right? Problems always have a behavioral cause. Many people understand that now, but that you can use that by preventing problems more effectively in practice. And that already happens. That is something so It's not just conceptually a good idea. It's in practice also really effective. What I find interesting as well is when I worked in audit or as a regulator, I was there to identify and reveal uh, behavioral risk. But once you know that, of course, you do that to mitigate that risk, meaning cultural change or behavioral change is extremely important. I'm very curious to hear about your experience in that. I know you've run a lot of culture reviews with clients. So if you think about implementing culture change, where would you start?
0: Yeah, I mean, it absolutely right. I mean, I think in my focus, group, I've probably spoken to about ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 employees over the years. And actually, I sometimes thought, okay, is this a recognition issue? Someone talks about speaking up. Is this a speak-up issue? And you would look at all of those symptoms, but what do you boil it down to? What's fundamentally failing or not working as well as it could in an organisation? I think there's three things that I regularly get that people when they're walking out of these sessions say, "I say to them, "Look, you've invested your time in this session with me. You've given me an hour of your time. What would you want to happen? I mean, let's be honest, it's not a wish list. it's not a letter to Father Christmas or Santa. It's actually what meaningfully can happen here. And I think often some of these issues become a clarity of messaging. We spoke about communication earlier, that clarity of communication, that engagement, but also, A lot of feedback we get is the communication tends to be very top down. There's no real feedback loop there. There's no bottom up. There's no engagement where you've given feedback and senior leadership will close that loop off. Even if you don't get your decision that you want to happen, the fact that someone's listened and they've demonstrated they've listened and they've communicated that back to you is incredibly important. And the problem with clarity of messaging, and I sometimes see this in groups where someone will say, well, This is happening next year. And then someone else will say, well, I've never heard of that. Where did you get that information from? Oh, my manager told me. Oh, why wasn't I told? And the problem is you create these information silos, often caused by that management cascade. Those inconsistent communications. And what happens, I guess, behaviorally, and for your background, you'll be able to give me a lot more evidence around this. If we have an information gap, how do we generally fill it? Well, usually with some sort of negative bias and a bit of suspicion, well, you know, there's a reason I wasn't told or had one few months back where actually people were very happy with their current hybrid working status. But because the organisation wasn't communicating regularly with them, they assumed it was going to be taken away. I can't tell you how many times over the last few months, especially on the back of COVID, where people have said, oh, yeah, I've given my survey answers so many times, but I never hit back. Absolute survey fatigue. And yet, all they want and the value of having those discussions with leadership and actually leadership caring and, and actually listening and then as i said even if the decision doesn't go your way explaining why it's not gone someone's way now there's obvious things you can't communicate all the time compensation being one of them but actually just having that ongoing loop will go a long way to building that trust and change within the organization I guess to a certain extent, my question is to you then. I've said the reality of what I'm seeing. How can behavioral science help here? Is there something a behavioral scientist could do to kick some of these efforts off?
1: I think, first of all, behavioral science helps to structure and provide evidence. For instance, you just referred to compensation, right? Sometimes a compensation itself cannot be changed, but people feel a certain degree or perceive a certain degree of unfairness around it. Behavioral science helps you to understand what the risk is if you leave that unmanaged. So if you leave unfairness be, like life is sometimes unfair, but what you can do is acknowledge that unfairness or talk to people about it in a well thought through way uh, so that it mitigates the risk of them acting upon that because we know from behavioral science that unfairness may lead to retaliation behavior or that people just zone out, get disengaged. Uh, So it can go to less innovation, uh, performance goals not being met, but it can also go towards a conduct risk where people indeed care less about rules and codes to adhere to. So behavioral science helps you to understand why people behave the way they do. And that helps you to change it in a more targeted way. So instead of saying, we need a whole culture change, knowing actually we need to address this point of remuneration, or we need to talk to them about the hybrid way of working because there's something there that will help them work as we want to work with each other. Make a strong point around, do you need a behavioral science team? You don't need people with PhDs necessarily to come into your organization with a full team to do this work. It's a combination of, I worked in a team with chartered accountants. So the combination, the multidisciplinary Approach, I think, really works. You see these teams emerge in risk management, in risk functions. So sometimes it's internal audit, sometimes risk functions, HR. I've seen great examples. Risk and control in the first line, because that is also a point to make, of course, that the business manages its behavioral risk and is responsible for managing that behavioral risk.
0: But you talk about those different functions and the ownership. How important do you think it is who owns the approach? within functions is it better to have it in first line is it better to have it in HR is it better to have it in risk and I guess depending on where that's put how do you create that sort of collaborative franchise-wide approach to culture
1: so I strongly believe behavioral risk management is responsibility of the business because how do you do business and what you do all day at work in that first line at the working floor is where behavioral risk emerges but also where it's managed people manage everyone on call here today manages behavior risk daily because it's everywhere so you manage it every day by setting the scene and how we do things here and how you work so it's something that is first line owned yeah as would credit risk be as would operational risk be right it's the same type of responsibility however to help first liar and also make sure that that is done actively it helps that you have also some capability in second and third line and i do think it's across all three lines of responsibility to incorporate to do this explicitly and perhaps back to the behavioral science point if you don't mind i think yeah of course you don't need you know teams full of psychologists but what does help is to include some behavioral science expertise to ensure you do this evidence-based because what you don't want, and you heard people often say that when it's about culture, like, oh, it's subjective (laughs) and you have to feel your way around it. Like I would come into a, let's say an area uh, with mortgage advisors and I would say, I think this is happening. This is what I feel as a psychologist. No, behavioral science is evidence, gathering evidence on how do people behave? What are behavioral patterns here? How do we work here? What are our ways in practice? why is that happening and pulling that behavioral science also uh, to evidence why that needs to be addressed if you want to achieve your strategy or if you want to prevent problems.
0: So how do you practically gather that evidence from the work that you do?
1: So what we see and what I do, but also what we see firstly when they build this capability is using data to know your hotspots. So that has also behavioral science link and then going into uh, your vulnerable or hotspots areas or processes to using interviews, one-to-one confidential conversations, often indeed also a survey, but people, like you said, alluded to before, there's survey fatigue and also people do not always talk about why they do things in detail on a survey. No. so You need a conversation to understand why did you not speak up in that meeting? What is that about? Yeah. Like, we know we need to speak up. There are speak up procedures. Everybody tells us you need to speak up. It's really important. And then it doesn't happen. Why is that? A survey will tell you, I think, you need to... I can tell you. ...talk to people,
0: yeah. No, no. It's interesting, though, two quick points. The survey point is key. i never, you know, sometimes people hear me, they think, oh, you're very down on surveys and almost like I'm trying to put these survey providers out of business. I'm, I'm totally not. I think they're great in terms of trending direction of travel for certain behavioral and cultural issues so I think they're great for that I think sometimes once the survey has been done what happens afterwards I think is where we sometimes come into problems and as you said there it's a data set it highlights or signposts where things need to be focused but honestly if you and I looked at two different survey results now we could totally interpret what was going on differently by looking at the same data so you can bring your own bias into that interpretation of the data without actually taking the time to dig into the issues so actually i think they're great as a trending mechanism and gathering data but actually how easy would it be and I, I say it's easy clearly you need time but how easy would it be to actually take the survey results and say well look guys these numbers here have dropped off pretty consistently over the past six months or the past two years if you're doing an annual survey you know going into a group of people and saying well why do you think that is you can cut your survey data by groups. so one group may be going up one group may be going down go in and have the conversation just say what's driving that and that will actually give you so much more valuable information
1: exactly and then sometimes it helps if people feel not safe or secure or there's a certain level of mistrust then it does help if you have somebody Externally coming in, or somebody from an independent team within your organization, having that conversation to ensure that people feel free to discuss things. And I do think that people, indeed, like you said before in this conversation, really appreciate that. Often, I often have people that I speak with that say, "Nobody has asked me this for the last year." <laughs> to quite cathartic, isn't it? people yeah, <laughs> at work, yeah, I and mean, not just how I feel, but also what I live through. What are typical when was the last time I made a mistake and what did my team, how did my team respond? What was the last time I was in doubt? When did I feel uncomfortable during a meeting? These are yeah, all parts of our daily working life. It's just realistic to know.
0: Great questions as well. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting. So just very quickly, because I did say I did know the answer to the speak up point. Now I don't, I was obviously joking a little bit. I don't really know the answer, but very often it's interesting. The, out of all the thousands of people I've ever spoken to, and often we drill into speaking up and, yeah, you know, we're making sure that that speak up channels are working effectively, are available, working effectively, they're fit for purpose, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Tone from the top is great. You're encouraging people to speak up. You're making it really clear on a regular basis that there is no fear of reprisal. There is no reprisal. So you're really trying to address that fear. But very often, and it's back to the second bit I was saying about feedback loop, very often it becomes, well, I've spoken up about it once, I didn't hear anything back, so I won't speak up again. And I reckon 90% of those issues are, uh, 90% of people turn around and say to me, it's apathy. I know that if I say something, nothing will be done or I won't hear back from it. So look, I'll just get on with it and I'll live with this imperfect process, for example. And that's where you know, the behavior thing ceases to be sort of fluffy and nice it could be that you've got a problem in your accounts ex-accountants are clearly a good bunch of people but clearly you might have a problem in your accounts and you think well actually i've worked around this now for two years or i've had this tech fix that no one's ever put in i'm just going to carry on regardless because no one's listening
1: that's what i think also what i meant with predictable and understandable human behavior that has any nothing to do with you know, are these good people or bad people? Is it the toxic culture? Was there a villain as a dysfunctional leader? But none of that. It's just normal yeah. behavior, the way we do things, the way we respond to things in professional life. And the great thing about that is that you can indeed assess it, but also manage it. And I wonder, you know, if you say... Okay, these processes. Look, is it then? Do you have an example from your practice what actually works with managing this? Because yeah, some people also say, right, uh, it's a training or something. Well, we need to train everybody on that process, or
0: you know, can, can you give? Yeah, you know, no, Yeah, no, good, good question. I mean, I guess there's a couple of things. First of all, how that actually filters down into organizations. One aspect, I think, obviously, and we've spoken about this getting some infrastructure in place at the very beginning, getting senior sponsorship, giving the whole topic we're talking about here some value. You know, that accountability, that ownership, and accountability from everyone. You know, sometimes you get those questions, who owns risk in the organisation? Oh, you know, someone over there is doing it. Or who's responsible for DE&I? Oh, we've got a team doing that. No, you are. (laughs) You are. Everyone is. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of examples where people have tried to, firms have tried to put infrastructure around that they have cultural ambassadors help speak up help drive those advisory groups i think actually just taking a step back as well and saying well actually if you ask a firm what's your culture strategy look this is where you are now this is what good looks like this is the expected behaviors how are you going to get there you know how many people have got that and then i think actually what you do within the organization really counts as well and you mentioned training absolutely but how many trainings have we ever seen where actually a we get training once a year or we only get it when we join the firm and we don't ever talk about it again or we have a tick box but then how does that become relatable to people i mean think of values i mean this one's always a gripe of mine i'm in money mood now clearly but you have values on the wall we sort of remember three or four of those but actually they mean different things to different parts of the organisation. And and what does acting with integrity mean for me or acting like an owner mean for me if I'm sat in a trading function versus a compliance function? What does it mean? How do you make these things relatable? So I think training, and certainly I'm a big advocate of scenario-based training and using stories to highlight these issues is certainly a good place to start through all parts of the employee lifecycle. That clarity of messaging as well, really important. employees we've already explained at some length around how that's important and I think even to your point earlier about that data aspect and actually having those conversations and increasing general awareness I think is almost the first step in managing behavioral risk and actually getting people as you said you know it's not necessarily that you hire a team of behavioral scientists or I like the way you've talked yourself out of some work there but actually, just starting to discuss it. And if you need external help, great. If you don't and you think you can do it in house, then that's great too. But actually, you and I fundamentally agree with actually trying to make a difference anyway. So, actually, just starting to have those conversations. I mean, even yeah. think of your last Exco or your last board meeting. When did someone actually talk about behavior? When did they actually talk about culture? I mean, how many times is culture on the last agenda item on an Exco? It gets a bit depressing after a while, but, you know.
1: Yeah, and also, I think, you know, to the value bit, let's say, do the right thing. Nobody will disagree with that. Most people want to do that.
0: Yeah, we mentioned the regulator. And as you said, you worked for the Dutch regulator. Yeah, I think in the US, conduct risk is sometimes a reason why to start working on culture. How do you see that in Europe? And how does the regulatory agenda sort of add to that?
1: yeah so i recognize that indeed and then perhaps the interesting thing is that when the dutch central bank started to supervise behavior and culture it was after uh, some failings of banking organizations in the netherlands amongst which uh, ABN emerald uh, of course with rbs was an important event for the dutch financial system mm-hmm. and so from a prudential i worked at a prudential regulator really no not the conduct regulator. so it started with if you want financial stability and prevent failing of banks, let's also look at the way decisions are made. Uh let's start it really at the top of the house. Yeah. So not so much conduct. That came in later. But I do think in the US, mainly for instance, if you talk about behavioral risk, it's often conduct related. Whilst what we're trying to do and always show is that look, behavioral risk underlies every type of risk. This is not just about conduct. Conduct issues are a result and outcome of yeah. that math behavioral risk. But Financial crime, not managing your financial crime can also be a result of a behavioral risk or operational issues, financial risk. So this is often also placed in NFR, of course, non-financial risk area, but whilst it underlies also credit risk, there are behavioral aspects. Let's say the dynamics between Customer facing staff and credit risk teams, and the dynamics in between the decisions that are made around credit risk. That's also behavior. So it's not just conduct, but indeed, conduct is often uh, the point where it comes in and uh, where it starts. And I think well, from a regulatory perspective, what you see is at DMB, the Dutch Central Bank, we started in 2011 or 2010, really. After that, Canada, the New York Fed, of course, has a lot of uh, attention for this topic. Obviously, the FCA has a beautiful behavioral science team as well. Um, APRA in Australia, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the HKMA in Hong Kong. There's in the European banking supervision, structural attention and push from regulators for organizations to really pick this up and start managing your behavioral risk explicitly. Sometimes they call it risk culture. It comes down to the same thing. So I would say behavioral risk management is actually a bit more practical than a risk culture approach. So risk culture really focuses on risk management, risk taking and risk judgment. But yep. behavioral risk is also about that. Yeah, how do we reach our strategy?
0: Okay. What do we do? People are here. We've spoken a lot. What's the key takeaways for you from this discussion? What people here, What do what they need to think about?
1: I would say be curious about what is really happening at work at your level. I think you want to know how people work daily, because in that realistic view, there are aspects there that can help you reach your strategy, so achieve your goals, face challenges, to look back to the beginning, the challenges that you face more effectively. um, But there's also the opportunity to prevent problems proactively by looking at behaviors and current ways of working within your organization. And there is a structured and effective, proven effective way to do that. Yeah, and I hope today we've inspired some people on that and encouraged people to pick behavioral risk management up.
0: No, I totally agree. Listen, I couldn't have said it better, to be honest. But I guess to your point around curiosity, I totally get that. That curiosity just starts in the discussions. I mean, even going back and actually saying to your leadership team, what are we doing about, I mean, I sometimes say this when I see clients, as some say, how are you managing culture risk? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, and then you start that conversation. But even having those discussions, starting to talk to employees, you know, they're invested in the culture as much as the top leadership. So actually start talking, start having that discussions, increase that awareness. And, you know, and actually, yeah, you and I, it's actually quite nice of all the focus groups i've done all of the conversations i've had with thousands of employees i'm sure that you're the same with the interactions you have it's actually quite enjoyable to hear what they're saying and actually try and move the dial a little bit for them as well and very often they just want to know that you're listening and have those conversations so look this has been so much fun thank you everyone for joining really appreciate the attendees speaker thank you so much for turning up really looking forward to more discussions and discussing my naivety around some of these topics but really appreciate the conversation